0: Thank you, Gary. Uh, its uh, I think this is my fifth time here and it's always been a pleasure. And a lot of the pleasure has to do with the way Gary sets the tone, at least for writers. Uh, you visual artists probably do well too, I don't know. Uh, I'm gonna start with a poem. I'm gonna go in and out from very new things to somewhat older things, some middle things. If a clown, if a clown came out of the woods, a standard looking clown with oversized polka dot clothes, floppy shoes, a red bulbous nose, and you saw him on the edge of your property, there'd be nothing funny about that, would there? A bear might be preferable, especially if black and berry driven. And if this clown began waving his hands with those big white gloves that clowns wear, and you realize he wanted your attention, has something apparently urgent to tell you, would you pivot and run from him or stay put, as my friend did, who seemed to understand there was a clown who didn't know where he was, a clown without a context? What could be sadder, my friend thought, than a clown without a context? If then the clown said to you, that he was on his way to a kid's birthday party, his car had broken down and he needed a ride, would you give him one? Or would the connection between the comic and the appalling as it pertained to clowns be suddenly so clear that you'd be paralyzed by it? And if you were the clown, and my friend hesitated as he did, would you make a sad face and with an enormous finger wipe away an imaginary tear? How far would you trust your art? I can tell you it worked. Most of the guests had gone when my friend and the clown drove up, and the family was angry. But the clown twisted a balloon into the shape of a bird and gave it to the kid who smiled, letting it rise to the ceiling. If you were the kid, the birthday boy, what from then on would be your relationship with disappointment, with joy? Whom would you blame or extol? Well, I wanted to read this, because uh, I want to. Uh, uh, but really, for, pe- for a couple of people in the audience. And I thought if I don't do it now, I might forget. Uh, so this is for George and, and Deborah. Uh, Frank and Deborah, thank you, dear. <laughs> uh, ha- called Summer Nocturne, has an epigraph from Simone Veil let us love this distance since those who do not love each other are not separated summer nocturne night without you and the dog barking at the silence no doubt at what's in the silence a deer perhaps pruning the rhododendron or that raccoon with its brilliant fingers testing the garbage can lid by the shed night i've chosen a book to help me think about what's about the long that is in longing, the space across which desire reaches. Night that finally needs music to quiet the dog, and whatever enormous animal night itself is, appetite without limit. Since I want to be heard a little, it's stand gets, and it never entered my mind. And to back him up, Johnny Walker Black, coming down now from the cabinet to sing of his twelve long- lonely years in the dark. Night of small revelations, night of odd comfort, starting to love this distance, starting to feel how present you are in it. What's, what's one of the most, if not the most, overused word, misused word of our generation? John's going to tell me I know, but... Pardon? Amazing. Amazing. Close, I think. John? Awesome. awesome. Who, who Who said awesome? Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think it's awesome. I think it's awesome. Uh, you know, people say, that's really an awesome bottle of water there. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I mean, I suspect that anybody who's ever experienced awe, and probably few of us have, makes us silent, right? I mean, uh, okay. This is a, this is a poem uh, attempts to restore some words. Love. Found dead in an alley of words, awesome, no hope for it. And share, which must have fallen trying to get by on its own. And near the trash cans, almost totally exhausted, the barely breathing cool. (laughs) But there's love among the disposables, waiting as ever to be lifted into consequence. And here comes a forager looking for anything that might get him through another night. Love's right in front of him, his if he wants it. In the air, the ashy smell of cliches, the stink of obsolescence. He's leaning love's way. All the words are watching, even the dead ones. It's as if it w- it's as if what he does next could be the equivalent of restoring awe to awesome. That love, if chosen, might be given back to love, made new again. But the man is just a man out for easy pickings. Or has he just remembered how early on love always feels original? Let us forgive him if he keeps on foraging. Talk to God. Thank him for your little house on the periphery, its splendid view of wildflowers in summer and the nervous, nervous forked prints of deer in that same field after a snowstorm. Thank him even for the monotony that drives us to make and destroy and dissect what otherwise would be merely the lush unnamed world. Ease into your misgivings. Ask him if in his weakness he was ever responsible for a pettiness some weather, say, brought in to show who's boss when no one seems sufficiently moved by a sunset or the shape of an egg. Ask him if when he gave us desire he had underestimated its power and when, if ever, did he realize love is not inspired by obedience. Be respectful when you confess to him you began to redefine heaven As you discovered certain pleasures and sympathize with how sad it is that awe has been replaced by small enthusiasms. Excuse me. That you're aware things just aren't the same these days, that you wish for him a few evenings of the old stunned silence. Maybe it will be possible then to ask why this sorry state of affairs, why after so much hatefulness done in his name, No list of corrections nailed to some rectory door. Remember to thank him for the silkworm, apples in season, photosynthesis, the northern lights, and be sincere. But let it be known you're willing to suffer only in proportion to your errors, not one unfair moment more. Insist on this as if it could be granted, not one moment more. Some years ago, I wrote a book called Rifts and Reciprocities, which was a collection of paragraphs that were tangentially related, prose paragraphs. Some people call them prose poems. It's all right. Um, I wrote them as prose paragraphs. Uh, I'll read you these two to start off with scapegoat and criminal. They look like this on the page. Scapegoat. It's the day of atonement and Aaron has a brilliant idea. Two goats as offerings to the Lord. One he kills as a personal atonement for himself and his house. The other is the scapegoat. He lays both hands on its head confessing the sins of the people then sends it off into the wilderness. Poor goats, lucky unburdened people. It's easy to see why such an idea caught on. There's a burnt offering too involving a ram. In the face of the ineffable, Aaron tries to cover all bases. But we're most interested in the goat that bears our large and small mistakes and carries them away from us. Leviticus knew how to tell a story, but here's what was never reported. The Lord saw the goat in the wilderness stumbling half-dead. He said to it, a goat's life is an awful thing. This was not my intention. What they've done to you is just one more of their sins. Criminal. I suspect most of us have been a hair or two away from being a criminal, you know, not even by choice, you know, just little things. and." Uh, Uh, in some cases, big things, but criminal. Born wrong, could be as simple as that, wrong parents, wrong country, or born anywhere, eminently decent, but on the wrong side of a bad law. Then there's the luck that separates forgotten incident from criminal one, like the time I accidentally accidentally set the corner lot ablaze, a nasty wind that day, no witnesses. I think two of the children I might have killed had they timed their carelessness just right. A trace of liquor on my breath, their ball rolling into the street, my car going slightly faster than slow. Fingerprinted, front paged. Instead, a normal evening at home, a citizen nearly upright. Aren't most of us caught or not responsible for some kind of choice? And of course, certain criminals calculate, plan, Hide in the bushes, alter the books, so little separates me from them. Send us off into the wilderness without a goat, bearing our own burdens, or maybe we deserve worse, or just to be left alone. We probably have more than one destiny, but one of them for sure is to meet up with ourselves. No Lord, no one to condemn or forgive. One of the, uh, well, I should say before I say what I'm going to say, that for a long while uh, I, I believed in these pairs having terrific integrity. I would never read one without the other. Now I don't care. Uh, so I'm going to read you a couple of singular ones. One of, one of the benign arguments I had with my ex-wife that lasted a long time was her contention that crows travel in threes. And no amount of empirical evidence would dissuade her from this. Uh, Seriousness. Driving the Garden State Parkway to New York, I pointed out two crows to a woman who believed crows travel always, traveled always in threes and later just one crow eating the carcass of a squirrel. The others are nearby, she said, hidden in trees. (laughs) She was sure, now and then she'd say, see, and a clear dark trinity of crows would be standing on the grass. I told her she was wrong to under or overestimate crows and wondered out loud if three crows together made any evolutionary sense. I was almost getting serious now. Near Forkard River we saw five, There's three, she said, and two others with a friend in a tree. (laughs) I looked to see if she was smiling. She wasn't. (laughs) Or she was. Men like you, she said, needed written down, notarized, and signed. And one more of these. uh, this is for you Facebook folks out there who have by by by, by I can't even speak by my lights many too many friends. Uh, acquaintances. Not friends. A friend, after all, is someone with whom you need not discuss important subjects, though often you do. Nor do you have to clarify the status of your relationship except when you must. Your good news doesn't bother him too much. Bad news brings out the empathetic best in you both. To be just, and each of you knows what small misfortunes to keep to yourself. To be just an acquaintance is normal enough, but terrible to be an acquaintance when you want to be a friend. Terrible when one person is thinking friend, the other acquaintance. And after a long separation, those rapid, uncomfortable pats on the back when they hug. Show me a backpatter and I'll show you an acquaintance lost among his intuitions, whose body's Morse code is doubt, doubt, doubt. At a party full of acquaintances, it's almost as bad. What do we say after we, what we usually say? Better to be a stranger with small hopes than a plan. language a love poem this is uh, a double love poem one to my wife and one to one part to language and I've stolen a few lines from Pablo Neruda in here which I won't tell you what they are Uh, and I guess it it involves somewhat of a quarrel with those people who are too fond by my lights of of semiotics Language, a love poem. When I say your hair is the color of a moonless night in which I've, start again. When I say your hair is the color of a moonless night in which I've almost been lost, I mean approximately that dark. And the dove outside our window is no symbol, merely wakes us at dawn. It's made a grayish creature that coos quite poorly. Peace is an entirely different bird. The rose to me signifies the rose and the guitar signifies a musical instrument called the guitar. At other times, language is a slaughterhouse, a hammering down, its subjects hanging from hooks on the verge of being delicious. When I say these things to you, it's to watch how certain words play themselves out on your face, as if no one with imagination can ever escape being a witness. The whale, for example, no matter its whiteness, is just a mammal posing as a big fish, except, of course, if someone is driven to pursue it. That changes everything, which is not to suggest I don't love the depth of your concealments. When I say your name over and over, it's because I cannot possess you. History. It's like this. The king marries a commoner and the populace cheers. She doesn't even know how to curtsy, but he loves her manners in bed. Why doesn't he do what his father did, the king's mother wonders. Those peasant girls brought in through that secret entrance. That's how a kingdom works best. But marriage? The king's mother won't come out of her room and a strange democracy radiates throughout the land which causes widespread dreaming, a general hopefulness. This is, of course, how people get hurt, how history gets its ziggy shape. The king locks his wife in the tower because she's begun to ride her horse far into the woods. How unqueenly to come back to the castle like that, so sweaty and flushed. The only answer his mother decides is stricter rules, no whispering in the corridors, no gaiety in the field. The king announces his wife is very tired and has decided to lie down, and issues an edict that all things yours are once again his. This is the kind of law history loves that contains its own demise. The villagers conspire for years, waiting for the right time, which never arrives. There's only that one person, not exactly brave, but too unhappy to be reasonable, who crosses the moat, scales the walls. Don't do that. It was bring your own if you wanted anything hard, so I brought Johnny Walker Red along with some resentment I'd held in for a few weeks, which was not helped by the sight of little nameless things pierced with toothpicks on the tables, or by talk that promised to be nothing if not small. But I'd consented to come, and I knew in what part of the house their animals were sequestered, whose company I loved. What else can I say except that old retainer of slights and wrongs, that bad boy I hadn't quite outgrown. I'd brought him along too. I was out to cultivate a mood. My hosts greeted me but did not ask about my soul, which is when I was invited by Johnny Walker Red to find the right kind of glass and pour. I toasted the air, I said hello to the wall, then walked past a group of women dressed to be seen, undressing them one by one, and went upstairs to where the Rottweilers were, Rosie and Tom, and got down with them on all fours. <laughs> they licked the face I offered them. They proceeded. And I proceeded to slick back my hair with their saliva. And before long, I felt like a wild thing, ready to mess up the party, scarf the hors d'oeuvres. But the dog said, no, don't do that. Calm down. <laughs> After a while, they open the door and let you out. They pet your head. And everything they might have held, you might have held against them, everything they might have held against them is gone. And you're good friends again. Stay, they said. The imagined. If the imagined woman makes the real woman seem bare-boned, hardly existent, lacking in gracefulness and intellect and pulchritude, and if you come to realize the imagined woman can, can only satisfy your imagination, whereas the real woman with all her limitations can often make you feel good, how, in spite of knowing this, does the imagined woman keep getting into your bedroom and joining you at dinner? Why is it you always bring her along on vacations when the real woman is shopping or figuring the best way to the museum? And if the real woman has an imagined man, as she must, someone probably with her at this very moment, in fact, doing and saying everything she's ever wanted, would you want to know that he slips into her life every day from a secret doorway she's made for him, that he's present even when you're eating your omelet at breakfast? Or do you prefer how she goes about the house as she does, as if they were just the two of you? Isn't her silence finally loving and yours not entirely self-serving? Hasn't the time come once again not to talk about it? I don't know if you have a time like this, but. when you're most likely to get in trouble. Uh, Mine's around four o'clock. I'm kind of safe right now, I think, and so are you. Uh, Bad. My wife is working in her room writing, and I've come in three times with idle chatter, some not new news. The fourth time she identifies me as what I am, a man lost in late afternoon in the terrible in-between Good work long over, a good drink not yet what the clock has okayed. Her mood a little bemused, leave me the hell alone, mixed with a, mere, a weary smile. And I see my face up on the post office wall among men least wanted, looking forlorn. In the small print under my name, annoying to loved ones in the afternoons, <laughs> lacks inner resources. I go away, guilty as charged, and write this poem, which I insist she read at drinking time. (laughs) She's reading it now. It seems she's pleased, but when she speaks, it's about charm and how predictable I am. How, when in trouble, I try to become irresistible, like one of those blonde dogs with a red bandana around his neck. (laughs) Sorry he's peed on the rug. Forget it, she says, this stuff is old, it won't work anymore. And I hear, good boy, good boy, and can't stop licking her hand. This is the title poem of this book. This is my newest book, uh, a later selected uh, compilation of six books, I think. What goes on? After the affair and the moving out, after the destructive revivifying passion, we watched her life quiet into a new one, her lover more and more on the periphery. She spent many nights alone, happy for the narcosis of the television. When she got cancer, she kept it to herself until she couldn't keep it from anyone. The chemo debilitated and saved her, and one day her husband asked her to come back, his wife, who after all had only fallen in love as anyone might, who hadn't been in love in a while, and he held her so different, now so thin, her hair just partially grown back. He held her like a new woman, and what she felt, felt almost as good as love had, and each of them called it love because precision didn't matter anymore. And we had been part of it, often rejoicing with one and consoling the other, we who had seen her truly alive and then merely alive. What could we do but revise our phone book, our hearts, offer a little toast to what goes on? gotta look this one up excuse me a second The Waiting, I waited for you calmly with infinite patience. I waited for you hungrily, just short of desperate. When you came, I knew that desperate was unattractive. It was. I was calm. No one wants the kind of calm I was. It tried your patience. It made you hungry for a man who was hungry. I am that man, I said, but I said it calmly. My body was an ache, a silence. It could not affirm how long it had waited for you. It could not claw or insist or extend its hands. It was just a stupid body, closed up and voracious. After. Jack and Jill at home together after their fall. The bucket spilled, her knees badly scraped, and Jack with not even an aspirin for what was broken. We can see the arduous evenings ahead of them and the need now to pay a boy to fetch the water. Our mistake was trying to do something together, Jill sighs. Jack says if you'd have let go for once you wouldn't have come tumbling after. He's in a wheelchair but she's still an item for the rest of their existence, confined to a little rhyming story. We tell it to our children who laugh, already accustomed to disaster. We like to teach them the secrets of knowing how to go too far, but Jack is banging with his soup spoon, Jill is pulling out her hair. Out of decency we turn away, as if it were possible to escape the drift of our lives, the fundamental business of making do with what's been left us. this was a request, uh, has an epigraph from a freshman's short story. John and Mary had never met. They were like two hummingbirds who also had never met. John and Mary. And they were like gazelles who occupied different grassy plains, running in opposite directions from different lions. They were like postal clerks in different zip codes with different vacation time. Their bosses adamant and clock-driven. How could they get together? They were like two people who couldn't get together. John was a Sufi with a love of the dervish. Mary, of course, of course, a Christian with a curfew. They were like two dolphins in the immensity of the Atlantic. One playful, the other stuck in a tuna net. Two absolutely different childhoods. There was simply no hope for them. They would never speak in person. When they ran across that windswept field toward each other, they were like two freight trains, one having left Seattle at 6.36 PM at an unknown speed, the other delayed in Topeka for repairs. (laughs) The math indicated that they'd embrace in another world, if at all, like parallel lines, or merely appear kindred and close, like stars. Well, since I've been teaching this week, here's a, here's a teaching poem, uh, Shatterings. In my dream, I'm addressing a large class about Trotsky and Rambeau. Trotsky wanted perpetual revolution, I tell them, Rambeau, a derangement of the senses. Wouldn't it be fun to have dinner with them? Most of my students have forsaken home or are planning to. They don't want to have dinner with anybody. They've mastered the boredom they think conceals them. But the hungers of the few are palpable. They're famished for the marrow of experience, for the yet-to-arrive viscera of their historical moment. Rambeau is now 22, I say, gun running in Africa. He's already given up poetry, grown tired of breaking its rules. Trotsky has fled to Mexico. Stalin's thugs will soon cross the border with their ice axes. My class is called whatever I feel like talking about. No matter what the subject over the years, it's been the only course I've ever taught. Meanwhile, a rose explodes on the chalkboard. Three crows caw a hole in the sky. My job is to shatter a few things. Should I put them back together? What's going on here? What kind of dream with Rambeau in it finds itself concerned with responsibility? Yet I ask, what is the responsibility of the lyric poet? How it feels being himself? Why should anyone care? And the political philosopher, shouldn't he know a wildness can't go on forever? Perpetual anything I say, give me a break. Just how many deaths can a good idea justify? This dream is in need of a boutonniere, or, a bullet, or maybe a bullet suspended in midair. But just in time, a student rises and says, in the spirit of Trotsky, let's all our notes from this class-ridden class. Let's caress the world with leaflets. Half of the class follows him out the door. Clearly, I've poorly educated the others who remain seated, terrified they can't find what's next on the syllabus. But there, isolated among them, is that boy, my Rambodian, all testosterone and refusal, the one I always teach to. Look how he shrugs and heads toward the exit as if the future already had assured him it has openings for someone so unafraid of it, his assignments unfinished, his grade in doubt. Gary mentioned that celebration at AWP of, of me. It was, it was a lovely, lovely day, but in great that I am, I read this poem after I stood up. Uh, a great celebration. You're not surprised that you weren't surprised by how insufficient it all felt. The lovely kaleidoscopic violence of the Northern Lights one night in Maine or say that hummingbird's demonic display of metabolism in your garden. By then, many a beautiful strangeness had come your way, leaving you enthralled or impelled to imagine another world, or how it might feel, might feel to hover athletically over the things you love. It was no different than the day you slanged a few words into consequence and later heard a mandolin so finely played it made you weep. Each time you felt something more was needed, if a great celebration was to begin. There was so much docility you hadn't yet disturbed, so much bafflement in the face of a hundred things that seemed important to understand. Cacophony, a clink, a clank, perhaps some broad, unnerving, guttural claim. You hadn't tried half the ways to shake loose what's buried in lard. But even if you had, to shake loose is not to have or to own. You've learned not to send invitations out too soon. Of course, there have been times you've not needed an occasion to break out the Dom Perignon, and times you've been able to toast yourself for being one of those men who can be beaten but hard to defeat. You know all about taking small sips for small reasons as now before dinner in your garden with your fluted glass more than half full and the last splinter of dust light refracting from its rim. You feel you've been given a gift, a moment to seize and name, and sweet though it is, hardly enough for a great celebration to begin. Around the Time of the Moon, the experts were at work doing expert work. Amateurs were loving what they hardly knew. Houston, tranquility base here, the eagle has landed came over our televisions. Accidental poetry, instant lore. Our parents couldn't believe it. Can you believe it, said my sister Sam. Elsewhere on terra firma, a chemist must have smiled an inner smile having perfected Agent Orange. Mistakes were made, said our president. Nary a personal pronoun could be heard. My friend on acid said he was the bullet, but sometimes also the wound. The moon was finished, he went on to explain, never again would haunt or beguile. Mary Travers was leaving on a jet plane, didn't know when she'd be back again. I, for one, was sad. Soon everyone had a harmonica on every street corner, a guitar, a few of us thought we thought it was possible to change the world. We were love's amateurs, its happy fools. I let my hair grow into a badge, became an expert on right and wrong, and under under artificial light in my room read strangely comforting books about alienation and, and despair. Meanwhile, almost unnoticed quotation marks descended from the sky, began to fit around everything we thought we knew. And trod upon or not, the obstinate moon would only be itself, kept bumping up the crime rate, lifting the helpless seas. A few more, maybe this because of What's Been Happening in the Middle East Lately. I wrote this long before what was happening in the Middle East. Uh, The Crowd at the Gates. The crowd had gathered by the gates. Like most crowds, it was more shifty than intelligent, on the verge of dangerous. At times, it undulated like gelatin. At at, At others, its movements were barely perceptible, as if we're waiting for some kind of permission. A crowd the gates knew was a tsunami in the making, which is why the gates were needed, big, stolid iron gates clear about their mission. The crowd had gathered by them, and the gates feared someone would make a speech. The gates always feared the articulate appeal to a collective deprivation. The gates had experience. They knew that after such speeches, crowds lack a sense of humor, which can diffuse misery, make a crowd break up. Behind the gates was the stronghold in which the deciders made their decisions. The gates would try to protect them, as ever. The crowd was getting larger, swaying now. Someone began to speak, and for a moment the gates wondered if it were possible for us to be moved, might we too be outraged, want to open ourselves wide and say, get them. Three more. Some years ago, I was reading an interview with John Ashbery, and the interviewer asked an odd question to him, which was, how come you don't write more poems about the occult? And and he had a great answer. He said it wasn't strange enough, (laughs) not the occult. Because I was slow with girls and didn't understand they might like to be touched, my girlfriend took my hand and placed it on her breast. We were 16. I just left it there as if I were memorizing, which in fact I was. It was all research and dreams, some fabulous connection between my hand and her breathing, that I was breathing like that too. I've always been drawn to such ordinary mysteries, women and men, the the broken bridge between us. I like thinking about night falling in a house where anything can happen and has, strangers coming in from their public outposts, the drift of history behind any wish to explain. How to say what can't be said across a table or bed. It's not the occult and those obvious stakes in the heart that make me wonder. And I confess I have trouble speaking to people fond of outer space. I don't like riddles. I'm tired of ambiguities, old academic academic hush. Still things happen and simply to record them is often to deceive is even sometimes to mimic fog, the way it's perfectly yet inadequately clear about itself. I'm thinking of that woman returning from the restroom unable to recognize her husband. She wasn't old, he hadn't disappeared, though she perhaps had lost him. Where is my husband, she asked the waiter, who pointed toward the table. And I'm thinking of the time we lay ourselves down among the dwarf pines, looked up at the sky, Nothing was new up there and down here the words for love stuck in their history of abuse. Angel, I wanted to say, meaning darling. It seems heroic how we survive each other, heroic that we try. I'm thinking of the power of loveliness to sadden. Oh, once there was such awe, such a pure desire to praise. There's not one of us who inspires as much. But I love the local and crude, somehow made beautiful, all the traces of how it got that way erased. I love the corporeal body itself, designed to fail, and the mind, the helpless mind, so often impelled to think about it. Sweetness. Just when it has seemed I couldn't bear one more friend waking with a tumor, one more maniac with a perfect reason, often a sweetness has come and changed nothing in the world except the way I stumbled through it, for a while lost in the ignorance of loving someone or something. The world shrunk to mouth size, hand size, and never never seeming small. I acknowledge there is no sweetness that doesn't leave a stain. No sweetness is ever sufficiently sweet. Tonight a friend called to say his lover was killed in a car he was driving. His voice was low and guttural. He repeated what he needed to repeat. And I repeated the one or two words we have for such grief until we were speaking only in tones. Often a sweetness comes as if on loan, stays just long enough to make sense of what it means to be alive, then returns to its dark source. As for me, I don't care where it's been or what bitter road it's traveled to come so far, to taste so good. Okay. I only read this poem to the best audiences. Uh, I've taught creative writing a word I don't much like, words I don't much like, for many years. seems mostly we're shepherding poems and stories into into some kind of being. Uh, already, as you'll see, this is too serious an introduction for this poem. And Decorum. She wrote, they were making love up against the gymnasium wall and another young woman in class, serious enough to smile, said, no, that's fucking. They must have been fucking to which many agreed, pleased to have the proper fit with word and act. But an older woman, a wife, a mother, famous in the class for confusing grace with decorum and carriage, said the F word would distract the reader, sensationalize the poem. Why can't what they were doing just as easily be called making love? It was an intelligent complaint, and the class proceeded to debate what's fucking, what's making love, and the importance of context, tact the bon mot. I leaned toward those who favored fucking. They were funnier and seemed to have more experience with the happy varieties of their subject. But then a young man said, now believing he had permission, what's the difference you fuck them and you call it making love, you tell them what they want to hear. The class jeered and another man said, you're the kind of guy who gives fucking a bad name. And I remembered how fuck gets dirty as it moves reptilian out of certain minds, certain mouths. The young woman whose poem it was, small boned and small voice said she had no objection to fucking but these people were making love. It was her poem and she herself up against that gymnasium wall and it felt like love and the hell with all of us. (laughs) There was silence. The class turned to me, their teacher, who they hoped could clarify. Perhaps, perhaps ease things. I told them I disliked the word fucking in a poem, but that fucking might be right in this instance, yet I was unsure now. I couldn't decide. A tear formed and moved down the poet's cheek. I said I was sure only of gymnasium, sure it was the wrong choice, making the act seem too public, more vulgar than she wished. How about boathouse? I said.